When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Genanthro fans. We're always trying to get the show into the ears of more listeners, and you can help. Just hop onto iTunes and give us a rating or leave us a comment about our show. We can wait. Done? Great. We thank you from the bottoms of our geo hearts. Also, if you have ideas or reactions to our show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, genanthropocene at gmail.com. Now time for the show. I'm thinking of a number between 4.5 and 4.7 billion. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3. Million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Miles Traer. Today's episode is about one of the most truly awesome things that has ever happened to our planet. The meteor impact that killed the dinosaurs. But before we get there, there's been a new development about another planetary boundary. The Anthropocene. The group tasked with actually placing the boundary has recently reached a consensus. And the answer may surprise some of you. Producer Mike Osborne decided to call up Paul Vusen they had a short conversation to help us understand this new development. Here's Mike and Paul. My guest is Paul Vusen. He's a staff writer at Science Magazine who covers Earth and planetary science issues. Paul, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So uh, can you briefly offer our listeners a kind of short history of the Anthropocene Working Group? You know, what is, what is the backstory here? Who are these people? Who's the International Commission on Stratigraphy? And, and bring us up to speed on what the, the news is. So the, this working group is really the brainchild of Jan Zalasiewicz. Uh, apologies if I didn't get that perfectly right, but he's a geologist and stratigrapher who, you know, he saw the term Anthropocene kind of surging into the public realm late last decade, and he immediately thought, well, they're using a term that's clearly inspired by our own geological time. Perhaps this is a geological time itself. Uh, talking with one of his friends who happened to be the head of the subcommission on the Quaternity, which is part of this uh, geologic bureaucracy I'll mention in a second, they commissioned a working group to investigate whether they might consider this a new geologic time. So they have just announced that they, they think they should propose this, that the World War II is the start date in their view, and that they will pursue a 
what's called a golden spike to really nail down that start date. So the International Commission on the Strate- uh, on Stratigraphy, I sometimes think of these guys as the, the masters of the geologic timetable, as it were. The, the news this week was that they are – actually, I'm still trying to understand the news this yeah. week because it's not exactly a formal proposal. It seems like a precursor to a formal proposal, but that the working group has reached some kind of consensus about the post-war period being what they're going to formally uh, propose to the commission. Is that correct? Yeah. You could kind of see this process of a, as a series of decision points, and this was really the first – decision point for it, whether it would move forward or just be tossed aside. So right now, after this vote, now they have to actually put together the, the evidence that the stratigraphers actually need to see for them it to have any chance of passing. So I want to, uh, I guess I want to hone in on like the, the actual reasons that, that they're talking about right now, to the extent that they are talking about um, reasons why they chose this as opposed to, say, the Industrial Revolution or the period, you know, six, seven thousand years ago where, uh, you know, society really begins to, civilization really begins to show up in a big way in the archaeological record. You know, why this time period? It's it's really for them about the kind of a global synchronous signature. So, you know, humanity has been altering the landscape thousands of years, as uh, Bill Rudiman's point out, others have pointed out, but really to first gain kind of past the hurdles they need for that global signal. You know, they need that. And also it it coincides nicely with the the notion of leaving the Holocene, the kind of envelope of change within the Holocene. Um, You know, the, the bombs are really like the atmospheric nuclear testing. That's more of a convenient thing, but just that rate of change in CO2 emissions post-World War II, that's when it really spikes. That's when nitrogen phosphate uh, in the northern lakes, that spikes. There's just a huge amount of, you know, spikes in the the chemical record from just everything taking off at that point. So that's where they really see that global change happening. Well, is there anything else that, uh, you know, you're finding interesting that you think the listeners should know? Is there anything else that we haven't brought up yet in this conversation that you'd like to add? Well, I would encourage them to get lost in the minutia of stratigraphy, the stratigraphic <laughs> bureaucracy. It's actually a fun little rabbit hole to go down. I can't tell uh, if you're being sarcastic or not. I'm actually not. I have a fondness for it. Um, but, you know, I would also don't expect this. You know, there's people have certain expectations of what can happen if they declare this, you know, the Anthropocene geologically. I'm not sure how this would be received. This is not the IPCC. This is not, you know, a body set up for this. And it's going to be a long, long time before anything really happens. Uh, they, you know, they, they, these feuds go on for decades over the naming and, and decision points on geologic time. Right. Well, that's great. As long as it goes on, we still have a reason to keep podcasting. Um, Paul, I think we covered a lot. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Congratulations on the article and, uh, and your job at Science. And uh, I hope we can connect again soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Star Wars. The Wizard of Oz. The Godfather. The Princess Bride. You know those movies and stories that you just go back to over and over again? The ones that you love? One of the best stories from geological history that we all love returning to is the extinction of the dinosaurs. 
We've all heard this story, but every time we revisit it, we find something new, something incredible. Of course, most of us now know that an asteroid hit Earth and caused a mass extinction. The impact crater left by that meteor still exists. Its center is just off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, and it's now buried under 66 million years worth of sediment. But a new research team just recently became the first to drill into a huge and perplexing part of the crater, a feature called the Peak Ring. Producer Mike Osborne spoke with Sean Gulick, a geophysicist at University of Texas, Austin. Sean is co-chief scientist on the new Dino Crater Drilling Project. So, okay, there's so much I want to talk about. Um, first of all, where, uh, where's the project in terms of drilling? Have you guys already gone out there? Yeah, so we've already uh, done the drilling. Uh, that occurred over uh, April and May of 2016, so of this year. Um, and the cores, we successfully collected about 830 meters of cores from a, a central structure within the impact crater. And we can talk more about that. So, you know, I want to come back to uh, the drilling itself in a second, but we really do need to set the stage here. Walk us through a little bit the discovery of the crater and its impact and um and, you know, kind of how we know what we know now. Right. So so if you go uh, back to the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was discoveries made both in Gubbio, Italy, and then, and then shortly thereafter uh, in Tunisia of a layer that separates the end of the Cretaceous, so roughly 66 million years ago, with the beginning of the Paleogene. And that layer was sort of a layer of clay that at the very top of that layer of clay, when they analyzed it for what kind of elements were in it, they found a very high abundance of an element called iridium. Now, iridium is found in very small amounts on Earth, but is found in very large amounts in places like asteroids, um, which are exposed to cosmogenic radiation all the time. And so because of that finding, Alvarez was the first to publish um, a paper in Science suggesting that the mass extinction event that occurred at the end of the Cretaceous 66 million years ago um, was caused by an asteroid or a comet. Now, fast forward to what we now know about this from, from that point, and we have at this point done geophysical images, so images of the subsurface um, that found the actual crater caused by this, this event. We've identified that it's an asteroid that was actually the impactor, not a comet, um, and we know something about its size. So we think that this uh, asteroid was a rocky asteroid about 14 kilometers across that hit Earth um, at, at very high speeds, like 20 kilometers per second or something like 76,000 miles per hour, um, creating an, an energy release that was probably the equivalent of 100 million atomic bombs. Um, and that created an impact crater um, that, that was on, is the final crater is about 200 uh, kilometers across, which has now been filled in. So if you go to Mexico, you don't see a crater there because it's entirely buried by the last 66 million years of, of basically limestones that have that have filled this this crater in. Right. I want to I want to set a little context because mo most of what I want to do, Sean, is kind of bring this moment to life in a couple of different ways. You know what it meant for the climate, you know, photosynthesis, chemistry of the atmosphere, um, sure. you know, the heat and, and all those things. But maybe it's helpful to start off by talking about asteroids sort of flying around space in general and how often, you know, impacts like these happen and how really how big this impact is compared to other impacts 
you know, it, uh, further back in, in Earth history, much of which sure. I guess we don't know. But you know, yeah, absolutely. So um, there are an enormous amount of objects in space, but space is really large. So you know, said in a simple way. So for instance, if you think about objects that just are coming near Earth. And you go to NASA web pages, uh, you know, about near-Earth objects, for instance, you'll find something like maybe 40 uh, objects coming somewhere within the range of Earth over the next just couple of months. However, most of the time, they're actually pretty far away from us, you know, maybe the distance of the moon away or something like that. And so there's not a huge amount of danger, but given enough time, things, of course, will hit Earth. So, for instance, uh, an asteroid that's maybe 100 meters across or something might hit Earth about every 100 years. Um, and that kind would be similar to what happened in the Chebelyensk event a few years ago, where it's something that blows up in the air, right? Now, go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. If you're looking for asteroids bigger than, say, 10 kilometers across, they're thought to only hit us maybe at most every 100 million years or so. However, interestingly enough, because our record of impacts is pretty incomplete because we have oceans that keep getting destroyed by plate tectonics and things like that. We only know of three very large impacts on Earth. Um, one that's Sudbury in Canada, one that's Redford in Africa, in South Africa, and then Chicxulub in the Yucatan. And the other two uh, impacts are actually two billion years old. So recent large impacts, the only one we actually know of is, is the, the Chicxulub uh, impact in, in Mexico. Um, that happened to be one that's directly correlated to this mass extinction event that killed the dinosaurs and along with 75% of life on Earth. That's sort of an important point of uh, clarification because, I mean, this is, you know, if, if you talk about events in Earth history that really capture the public's imagination, I mean, this is arguably at the top of the list, right? And so we tend to have this association with asteroids causing mass extinction events, but really the evidence is that this is the only one we know of. That's right. That's right. I mean, there are a lot of other large impacts, large being, you know, kilometers across impacts. So, for instance, I'll give you a good example. The Chesapeake Bay, buried beneath it, is an impact crater. That impact crater is something like 85 kilometers across. So the size of the meteor that hit was probably about three kilometers. So that you would think that's a pretty big event, right? But that happened about 35 million years ago, and there was no extinction event whatsoever. So, you know, it turns out it takes potentially a really large impact to cause a global event. And maybe it also takes the large impact hitting in just the wrong spot to particularly make it uh, a global catastrophe. Oh, interesting. Okay, I want to follow up on that second point in a second. But let's talk about that, because when we say this asteroid was roughly 14 kilometers across, that's big, but I mean, it's very big. But how does something like that cause a global scale event? Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess th there's a whole bunch of effects that happen when you have a large impact. So close into the impact crater you can, or the impact site, you can expect a lot of devastation, right? So there will actually be the blast wave. There will actually be earthquakes generated. So in this case, we think earthquakes on the order of magnitudes 12 or 13 were created, something much larger than plate tectonics can do. So everything around the Gulf of Mexico was, was shaken and all kinds of major landslides and things like that occurred. Um, but that isn't enough to cause a global catastrophe. It's a really bad day for Mexico, for the Gulf of Mexico, for northern South America, places like that, but not the other side of the world, just from the local effects. So we think the big effects globally are actually caused by what it kicks up. So it hits so hard that it actually vaporizes 
potentially a couple of kilometers into the crust and ejects many more kilometers into the crust. Um, and in the case of where Chicxulub hit, it hit about a, a, a set of rocks. Uh, well, let's see, they were probably about three kilometers thick of limestones and also sulfur-rich rocks, remnants of for, former ocean basins, actually, um, as well as, as, as water that was on average probably 600 meters deep. And so you put all of these what we call volatiles, things that can be turned into a vapor and be transmitted uh, into the atmosphere. You transmit them all around the Earth, and then you rain all these particles back down. And that causes a number of different effects. The bigger particles fall back down within potentially hours, and they actually would come in with a lot of heat. They would, for, through friction, they would actually heat up the lower atmosphere. So we might expect scattered wildfires um, and, and a, lot of, a, a lot of high temperatures right at the surface of the Earth that would have killed a lot of things immediately. But then the longer-term effects are the smaller particles it kicks up that would be up in the upper atmosphere and actually block uh, photosynthesis. So the sunlight would get very dim for potentially years after the event. And so you can think about that one-two punch of first a heating event, wildfires, and, and local de destruction everywhere you are, followed by a reduction in the most important thing for the food process on Earth, which is the sun. The heating of the atmosphere, is that local or is that is that a global phenomenon? That ends up being a global. So there's a major blast wave that's local out to, you know, maybe uh, tens of tens to hundreds of kilometers within the impact site. There would be this major blast wave. But everywhere on Earth experience this ejecta raining back down through the atmosphere. And that ejecta coming back down through the atmosphere has friction, and that actually heats up the surface of the Earth. That's actually a debated topic. I've heard of, you know, it was a pizza oven for a few hours, and I've heard it was a toaster oven for a couple hours. I mean, you know, exactly how hot is actually an interesting debate. How global the wildfires are is an interesting debate. People said, oh, global wildfires is as if every tree died, but that actually doesn't appear to be true. So I always say the word scattered wildfires, which is, which is thought to be more correct. But the net effect of all of this is no organism larger than about 25 kilograms, so larger than about 60 pounds, survived. In the ocean or on land? Correct. The dinosaurs and the marine reptiles that many people think of as dinosaurs are gone, and only the smaller guys make it through. Okay, so I, I want to get back to, because I really like, you know, your specific research and sort of understanding the physics and the geo, really the geophysics of, of what happens at the impact site and, you know, why go out and drill. But just to stick with some of the, the biological repercussions for a second, if we have all of these sulfate particles and other things in the atmosphere sort of diminishing photosynthesis, then, I mean, that, that presents a pretty nice hypothesis for what recovery of life would look like after, after the event. Does that jive with the fossil record? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting question. And one of the reasons that we drilled at Chicxulub was actually to look at the sediments right above the impact. So in ground zero, if you will, in the place that the impact happened, we wanted to look at what the ocean conditions were like right after the impact. So we wanted to collect sediments and the organisms, the fossil organisms within those sediments for clues as to what was the recovery process like and even how long did it take for, for life to come back. Um, and, and the amazing thing is we know, especially when you think about the oceans, that you know, those small organisms that are so critical to the ocean, so the, the grass of the ocean, these, these plankton that are photosynthetic and everything else eats or eats something that eats them, 
their their extinction rate in the ocean was like ninety percent. It was much higher than than even the global extinction rate. And and the immediate organisms that eat them, things like these foraminifera, which are uh, zooplankton, they're the animals of the of this that that upper ocean ecosystem. Something like ninety percent of those went extinct as well. The ones that lived in the upper ocean. Um, so there's there's obviously an incredible effect that occurred, you know, at that at that level. And we we're actually very interested in studying what we can learn by which of those organisms came back first and why certain ones survived. Cool. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this drilling specifically. First of all, you know, have we drilled the crater before? Yeah. So there has been onshore drilling by uh, the University of UNAM. It's called the Universidad Autonoma Nacional in Mexico, uh, uh, Mexico, which is the National University of Mexico. And uh, they have drilled several sites onshore. And then there was one international continental drilling project that drilled a site near the edge of the crater. <clears throat> so both of those were drilled based really on looking at the, what the crater looks like according to gravity. So because the crater has you know, lower density stuff and higher density stuff in places, it makes gravitational anomalies. And you can actually see that in a map of the gravity field over the crater. In the offshore, we have these wonderful geophysical images that were collected in the mid-90s, and then again we did it in the, in the mid-2000s, that let us actually directly pinpoint structures that, that tell us something about the way impacts work that we can then directly drill. And so specifically, what we drilled this time is something called a, a peak ring. It's a, it's a ring of mountains that surrounds only the two largest classes of impacts. And we could actually image them buried beneath the modern Yucatan, and we could actually pinpoint it with a drill bit and drill into one of these uh, peak ring mountains. Actually, help me put these two thoughts together. So we do have some cores, um, some onshore cores before, but so, you know, what, what will this current set of cores hopefully help us answer and identify uh, that we haven't actually already talked about? Sure. So two fundamental things. One, we're drilling farther offshore, which actually is the direction of deeper water. So we're actually drilling a slightly deeper water conditioned place, which is good for looking at the recovery of life in the oceans. Two is we're actually drilling up on a high because we're drilling on top of this ring of mountains. So the record that we drill shouldn't be contaminated with lots of things that fell down on top of it. We should actually see a nice sort of pristine recovery of life section that can help us. And then three, uh, probably most important, we're actually drilling into this peak ring. And if you wanted to understand the way impacts actually fundamentally are created um, or the possible relationships to life in the deep subsurface, this is the best place. And so the understanding how peak rings are made tells us things like how much is the surface of the moon overturned or not? You know, that's, that's kind of an important question from a history of planets in general. Wait, actually, I'm sorry. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So, so there are a lot of computer models that have been created about the way impacts work. At the speeds they come in at, many of the computer models would argue that whatever they hit starts to move like a fluid, where it hits and it actually pushes the crust downwards and outwards like a rock going into a pond because it's acting like a fluid. doesn't care whether it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sand or, or, or granite. It's going to move it out of the way. And then because it's acting like a fluid, it's going to fill that hole back in again by kind of collapsing inwards and even rebounding upwards, even potentially above the surface of the earth to, to collapse back outwards again and, and make 
a ring of mountains and, and extra rings that have collapsed in away from the impact crater. Right. Okay. So maybe this is a naive question, but is part of the question here, how long is the rock behaving like a fluid before it kind of freezes in place? Well, not only that, how does, how do rocks behave like a fluid? You know, what is the physical process that allows a rock to flow like a fluid without melting? You know, so there's some melt right at the, right at the top, but overall these, you, you aren't melting the entire crust. There isn't that much energy, but somehow they're moving. It looks like, you know, like a fluid for a while for a few minutes. How is that possible? And that's one of the things we actually hope to, to learn directly from looking at these cores. Exactly what did these rocks go through? How much of a ringer did they see before they created a mountain out of them? Well, just to dive into that a little bit more, are there other, uh, can we talk a little bit about the mineralogy? I mean, is there, is there uh, anything that we see or observe that is also unique, that is also uh, hinting at something? Well, so, yeah, we haven't gotten into all those details yet because we really need to open the cores to look at them. But we do think we're starting to see evidence in these cores of, say, big hydrothermal systems that occurred in the wake of the impact. You know, think of it as a massive hot spring system only buried in the subsurface. And that's pretty exciting because it can, could be that the first life on Earth was actually in impacts where potentially in the subsurface we created these conditions where we had fluids and chemistry and ways for organisms to live uh, the kind of energy that the organisms need to live in a protected environment like the subsurface of an impact um, after it formed might be a really important player in the evolution of life. And if we go to another place like Mars or something, we're looking for life, maybe we should be looking in the subsurface of, of impacts for these kind of uh, organisms, these bacteria or whatever they turn out to be that can live in those kind of environments. I mean, actually, just to, just to make it all clear, the sort of living off of the, the chemistry means not necessarily depending on the sun, right? I mean, yeah, so not, not depending on the sun at all. In fact, for instance, we know about chemosynthetic organisms that live in, at, at the center of ocean basins where there's these big ridges that are you know, creating new ocean crust. And there's a lot of organisms that live off those, those chemical reactions that occur you know, as, as, as the, the mantle turns to lava and kind of forms new crust very deep in the ocean, so much deeper than light can penetrate. In Chesapeake Bay impact, they, they in fact, they have drilled that and they found some organisms living modern day that we think evolved from the organisms that inhabited the impact right after it happened. And so we're similarly looking at our cores now to see if there is a whole ecosystem in the subsurface of the impact crater that has evolved from organisms that first moved in right after the impact. Wow. 66 million years ago. Are there any kind of big scientific questions that you feel like have been um, misperceived by the reporting on this drilling expedition and that the, the public's kind of not getting yet or isn't coming through that you're you know, particularly excited about? Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, so I, I, guess, I guess part of it is, is people often ask questions about, well, how much do we really know? that the, the asteroid impact you know, was the extinction-causing mechanism. And I think most people in the scientific community view that as, as, a, done, as a done deal. You know, sort of 95% of the community has is, is agreed that you know, the, the, the coincidence of the impact and the mass extinction event are sort of unquestionable at this point. Um, and, and now the question is, why? You know, why did it, it cause the mass extinction event? That's actually the more interesting question to us than did it. You know, we, we think that's pretty established. And another element to it, I think, is for people to realize the way sort of comparative planetology works in the sense that we can learn about something here on Earth that tells us about something that's 
solar system wide or galaxy wide, right? So it is way cheaper, even at a $10 million price tag, for us to go to Mexico and drill into the subsurface and sample features from the center of this massive impact crater than it would be to go get the same rocks from the moon, right? And so, but that allows us to understand something fundamental about the solar system and the way it works and the history of it. Um, by by studying the same process here on Earth, and that's that's a I think a really important element, and that also extends to this question of life, you know, of life living in impacts, and whether maybe then we we we'd know how to recognize it if we saw it when we go visit uh, an impact crater on Mars, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to elaborate on that, something I really enjoyed about the talk I saw you give in the Austin Forum was that, for the most part, uh, it's impacts that give shape to all the other planets in the solar system, right? I mean. Uh and here, here it's different because of tectonics and because of, you know, we have a wet planet that erodes a lot. Uh, but by and large, this is the sh force that gives the shape to the other planets and also becomes a kind of chemical mixture with which perhaps life is involved. That's right. I, that you could, I couldn't have said it better. That's, it, it's the fundamental process that reworks planetary surfaces on, on all the rocky planets in the solar system, with the exception of the ones that have some other thing like plate tectonics. Or in Venus's case, there's a complicated mix of, of temperature effects involved that it's not plate tectonics, but it's something similar where the crust is recycling itself. Right. Um, Sean, this has been such a pleasure. Congratulations on the core. Congratulations on, uh, on all the exciting work that lays ahead. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing where this goes. Wonderful. Thank you uh, for your time. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Traer. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene. Remember to leave us a rating and give us a comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.